Chapter 11, Part 1 of Shores of the Polar Sea, a narrative of the Arctic expedition of 1875-76. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shores of the Polar Sea by Edward Lawton Moss. Chapter 11, Part 1. There were no joyful demonstrations when the alert steamed across Discovery Harbor and anchored beside her consort. Congratulations were misplaced in the face of the news which had reached us, while we yet lay imprisoned at Shift Rudder Bay, news so serious that we could think or speak of little else. The last of the Discovery sledge parties had not returned leaving their ship on the 6th of April, 1876, and reprovisioning their sledges from the alert on the 20th, her parties had crossed over Robson Channel to the south-eastward, and reached the Greenland coast at a point twelve miles north of the spot where Hall's Cairn and Record marked the most northern position attained by the sledges of the American expedition. The Discovery's crews may therefore be said to have begun their sledging where their gallant predecessors left off. The shore led to the northeast and was piled with ice. Their path lay along banks of drifted snow, so steep that it was necessary to dig a groove for the landward runner of the sledge to prevent it slipping down into the trenches and moats cut by the wind round the piles of sea ice. These trenches were sometimes forty feet deep. When they were thirty-four days out from their ship, they arrived at the end of the continuous land, and here their last supporting sledge turned back, and left Lieutenant Beaumont's sledge, the Sir Edward Perry, to proceed alone. Islands with steep cliffs lay before them, separated by broad fjords. Looked at from the cliffs above them, the fjords promised good travelling, for inside the line of heavy polar flows their surface was one level sheet of snow. But, unfortunately, the treacherous snow was soft. Sledge and men sank deep at every step. Pulling out each foot was like pulling off a boot, and sometimes the men preferred to creep on hands and knees rather than attempt to walk. Their ankles swelled, and knees became stiff. Not a vestige of gain, of any sort, cheered their journey. On their forty-fifth day out, they had crossed the third and broadest of the fjords, and their waning stock of provisions warned them to return. For many days, fog and constant snow closed in their prospect, but from a mountain nearly four thousand feet high, they got a view of Cape Britannia and the islands about it far to the northeast, nearly in north latitude, eighty-three degrees. The disorder which had weakened us did not spare them. On their outward journey, James Hand had been taken ill and sent back with a supporting sledge. Poor fellow. He only lived to reach Polaris Bay. On the twelfth day of the homeward march, a seaman named Paul fell helpless in the snow, 
and had to be carried on the sledge. Four days afterwards, another took the place beside him. Soon, every day added to the number of the sick, and when the party was yet forty miles from the depot at Polaris Bay, but two, one of whom was the officer, were left to pull the others on, one by one. The advance of the season increased the misery of their position. Thawing snow fell constantly, and soaked their clothes. A storm blew down their tent, and they could only spread the canvas over their sick sledgemates, and crouch under the edge, wet through and sleepless, for days at a time. At this stage, most opportune and unexpected relief reached them. The auxiliary and Peterman Fjord parties camped at Polaris Bay, fortunately divined their condition, and two officers, with Hans the Eskimo, took a dog-sledge northward to meet them. With this aid, the invalids were soon carried into camp, but help came too late for one of them. A few hours after reaching camp, Charles Paul was laid beside his messmate, not far from the grave of Captain Hall of the Polaris. The tents were pitched near a small wooden hut left by the Americans. Its roof had been disturbed by the wind, but the stores of ham, molasses, lime juice, biscuit, and pemmican packed inside were serviceable, in spite of the five years they had lain there. A mattress found there made a luxurious bed for one of the invalids, and the members of the little colony made themselves as comfortable as circumstances would permit, while they waited for the sick to recover sufficiently to travel across to their ship, Hans, meantime, keeping them well supplied with seal meat. The dog-sledge carried news of their state across, and the assistance which arrived soon afterwards enabled a first detachment to leave on 29th July and reach the discovery without difficulty. The party remaining behind consisted of Lieutenant Beaumont, Dr. Coppinger, and seven men. The invalids amongst them were rapidly gaining strength. Another week, if the flows would only last so long, would leave them strong enough to attempt the march, and it was arranged that they would push across the pack on the 4th of August, at the latest. This was the last that was known of the party. It was nine in the evening of the 11th, when the alert steamed into Discovery Harbor, and up to that date nothing had been seen of the missing men. The recent storms and the breakup of the ice had made an awful change in their prospects. The flows, scored with the sledge tracks of twenty-one journeys, had moved off to the south, and a tumbling, heavy mass of polar pack now filled the strait from shore to shore. Lookout parties had already been dispatched to the mountain tops overlooking the strait, and we anxiously watched for the flag that would announce the discovery of the sledge crews. With a vivid recollection of the Robson Channel drift before us, we could not calmly contemplate the possibility that they had already started 
and been swept off south in the breaking of pack. In such a case, sudden destruction would be a merciful fate. There was still hope that they had not yet left the shore, and that if one of the ships could be forced across, they might be rescued. Accordingly, the alert was got ready. Such of her men as were not yet strong enough for the roughest work were transferred to the discovery. None but working hands were kept on board, and all our little valuables, journals, specimens, and so forth, were handed over to safe-keeping. On the night of the twelfth and morning of the thirteenth, the attempt was made, but the full steam-power of the ship was utterly helpless against the ponderous ice. It was simply impossible to bore even one half-mile into a pack of such proportions, and we were obliged to turn back and wait for a chance opening. Some hours before we made this attempt, a messenger had come down the hill with a report that the two tents had been made out with the telescope, still pitched on the shore of Thank God Harbor, Polaris Bay. The signalman even thought he could distinguish figures passing to and fro between them, but the wish was father to the thought. We afterwards learnt that neither tents nor men were there. The party had really left that shore five days earlier, and embarked on the most extraordinary journey of this, or indeed of any other expedition. They had made every preparation to leave on Friday, 4th of August. But when that day came, the weather suddenly changed, and storms of snow and wind made travelling impossible. It blew hard all that night, and Saturday morning brought no change. Everything beyond a few yards from the tents was hidden in drifting mists of fog and snow. Thus, for four days they lay weather-bound. At length, on the morning of the eighth, the sun shone through the clouds, and the wind lessened, till, towards evening, it fell quite calm. But as the fog and mist cleared away, and let them see farther and farther across the channel, they saw that all was changed. Miles of water spread between them and the white line of pack that lay under the edge of the fog. This was well, for water is easier to travel over than ice. Their boat was soon launched and packed with necessary stores, and by tying empty spirit tins to the sledge, they converted it into a raft and towed it behind. They had to be very careful, for the gunwale of their heavily laden boat was only three inches out of water. Fortune favored them. Several good leads of open water were found amongst the flows and by half-past two o'clock next afternoon they had pulled their boat and sledge through water spaces and overflows to within ten miles of the opposite shore. Then, tired with the long journey, and well satisfied with the progress made, they camped on a broad piece of old flow. 
the men were soon in their bags and asleep but their leader had noticed a slight change in the appearance of the coast and an unpleasant suspicion kept him wakeful once and again he crept out of the tent to have another look at the familiar bays and headlands there was soon no doubt about it the outline was changed and they were further off while they slept the flow was fast carrying them back the way they had come they must instantly start again and by hard marching make up for the loss they were soon under way and all night toiled on over one flow after another through pools and lanes of water across spaces of broken rubble and past bottomless sloughs of neither ice nor water for fourteen hours they held out then the men could do no more rest and food were absolute necessities but on camping they found to their dismay that the drift had been faster than their march and they were four miles further off than when they started eleven hours slipped by in sorely needed but sorely begrudged rest and when they next started the full danger of their situation was plain to all they could no longer see into lady franklin sound the headlands of cape lieber had already hidden miller island and were fast closing past discovery bay and ballad island they were gliding helplessly into kennedy channel and their provisions were already far spent on holding a short consultation it was resolved to relinquish any attempt to outmarch the drift of the pack and that the only chance of safety lay in making a push across the drift for the nearest point of land and never stopping till they reached it it was eight in the evening when they once more moved forward on this final effort and for nine hours they made fair progress but then a change came a strong wind sprang up against them and hurried the pack still faster away from shore presently the floes forced by both wind and tide began to move with alarming violence wheeling and turning in the most perplexing way so that the men over and over again crossed their own track they were now sixteen hours on the march and every hour the land looked more distant but they still fought on with every thought concentrated on hurrying on at full speed if they had stopped to consider it there was not at this time the faintest human possibility of reaching the land against the ice drift but their misfortunes had reached a climax at one in the afternoon of the eleventh the wind veered to the opposite direction and came on to blow hard the wheeling and tossing of the floes greatly increased but the fatal drift was checked providence had given them this chance and they one and all determined to make the most of it so redoubling every effort they pushed on for the land some fell asleep 
as they pulled in the drag belts, and when they reached the edge of the pack and launched their boat, others slept at the oars. But finally, at seven in the morning of the twelfth of August, land was reached, and they flung themselves down on the beach at Cape Liber, after an unprecedented march of thirty-two consecutive hours. When they had rested at this point, they had but to cross Lady Franklin Strait to reach the ships. The distance was about twelve miles, and the flows comparatively stationary. One march brought them more than halfway over, and just as they began the second, shouts and cheers coming to them across the ice heralded the arrival of a strong party from the alert. They had been seen by our lookouts, and were all soon on board, and never were guests more welcome. Next day, 15th of August, they reached their own ship, after an absence of no less than a hundred thirty days. End of chapter 11, part 1